This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I love talking to historians on this show. Historians find fantastic niches of history and overlooked patterns, and they tie these amazing threads together that explain the nuances of how modern society came to be, and they talk about our present, tying the dots back decades and decades. I've been so lucky to get some of the coolest guests imaginable on this show, and it's fantastic to have a guest agree to return for a second appearance. So today's guest is the return of Dr. Daniel Hummel from the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Hummel was a guest on episode 49 when we did an introductory overview about Israel and Palestine, and then discussed the involvement of Christian Zionism and the United States in the region. Dr. Hummel returns for this episode to discuss a new piece that he has out in a collected book, and the title of his piece is The Limits of Evangelical Christian Nationalism During the Cold War. The book appears in a new book collection, North American Churches and the Cold War, out now on Erdsman Publishing, an independent publisher since 1911 of intellectual books on theology biblical studies, Bible commentaries and dictionaries, ethics, and social criticism. Part of North American churches and the Cold War's description reads, History textbooks typically list 1945 to 1990 as the Cold War years, but it is clear that tensions from that period are still influencing world politics today. While much attention is given to political and social responses to those first nuclear threats, none has been given to the reactions of Christian churches. North American Churches and the Cold War offers the first systematic reflection on the diverse responses of Canadian and American churches to potential nuclear disaster. The book is a mix of scholars and church leaders. The contributors analyze the anxieties, dilemmas, and hopes that Christian churches felt as World War II gave way to the nuclear age. Dr. Hummel's piece is one of more than 30 pieces in this book. So my guest today is Dr. Daniel Hummel. He is a scholar, writer, researcher, and teacher of religion, politics, and foreign policy in the United States and the modern Middle East. He is currently at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Hummel is also a specialist in the concept of Christian Zionism and has a forthcoming book from the University of Pennsylvania Press entitled... A Covenant of the Mind, Evangelicals, Israel, and the Construction of a Special Relationship. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Daniel Hummel. Dan, thank you so much for coming back on Classical Ideas. Thanks, happy to be here. So since the last time we spoke, um, 
about Christian nationalism and Zionism and Israel and Palestine. Um, you have contributed a new piece to a book that I came across, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it today. So can you kind of give us an overview of this new book collection that you've recently contributed to? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me back on uh, the podcast. Um, the book is called North American Churches and the Cold War, and it's edited by uh, Paul Moges, and it, kind of, it came out with Erdman Press, which is a, a, a sensibly Christian uh, press, but it's an academic book. Um, the book is about, there are 34 contributors, there's about 30 chapters that look at all the different uh, Christian traditions uh, in North America and how they uh, dealt with and contributed to and tried to work against the Cold War. So the Cold War we're talking about uh, roughly 1945 at the end of World War II up until the fall of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991. And the book is divided into four sections. There's one that looks at Canadian churches or actually more than four sections, Canadian churches that looks at Roman Catholic Americans, that looks at mainline Protestant Americans, uh, Orthodox uh, Christian Americans, and Evangelical Americans. How did you hear about this collection? Like, how did you get involved? So the collection actually comes out of a number of conferences that happened uh, a few years ago, um, actually in Europe, and uh, a lot of church leaders. I should mention the contributors are both academics and church leaders. Um, I didn't. I wasn't at those conferences. I came in later as they were trying to fill out the evangelical part uh, of the book. Um, I'm friends with some of the other scholars that um, are contributing to that, uh, Mark Edwards, uh, Axel Schaefer, and some others. And so um, I sort of had a particular um, expertise in uh, looking at Christian theology, and particularly fundamentalist and evangelical theology, and that was sort of just an area that they were looking to expand in the book. Cool. Uh, so since you and I became friends after we recorded our previous episode, I've been following your work. And so you posted the title and a picture of the book on your Twitter page recently. And the title of the chapter that you included is the limits of evangelical Christian nationalism during the cold war. So can you tell me a little bit about the main argument for your contribution to the book? Yeah. Um, so I think when a lot of people, including a lot of scholars, think about evangelicals and Christian nationalism, they sort of associate evangelicals and fundamentalists as the most Christian nationalist of Americans. We can think of churches where they're flying the American flag, where you're doing the Pledge of Allegiance along with a prayer. Um, and this was no, this was very true in the Cold War uh, as well. A lot of evangelicals were very much uh, war patriotism on their sleeve and uh, often talked about a Christian America, an America that was blessed by God, that was on the right side of history, um, and that was sort of ultimately good versus the evil of the Soviet Union. Um, but I, knowing my, the, the theology of the people that I study, I knew that there were certain limits to this, and particularly that ultimately a lot of these evangelicals and fundamentalists did not think of themselves as mostly loyal to America, but mostly loyal to the church. Uh, and they had a particular understanding of what the church meant, but they were basically pro-American insofar as America supported this larger religious identity that they had of being a Christian. And so I wanted to sort of go to the limits of that Christian nationalism and show how the theology that evangelical fundamentalists uh, subscribed to actually sort of had in it um, limits that we can now see that not only are evangelicals very pro-American, but there's also, um, and particularly this is since the 1970s, a lot of criticism of America, of American culture, of secularism, of the Supreme Court and its decisions, 
of a big government. And these uh, might seem sort of contradictory to a robust nationalism. Uh, but there's a sort of uh, way to make sense of that by understanding the theology that these uh, people are working out of. So what did um, American Christian nationalists during the Cold War, what did they see their purpose as? Like, what were they trying to accomplish in the context of the Cold War? Yeah, so for many evangelicals and fundamentalists, the Cold War wasn't primarily a U.S. versus Soviet Union uh, geopolitical struggle. That was definitely part of it. Uh, but it was e even more fundamentally a spiritual struggle between the forces of good, of God and his church, and the forces of Satan, uh, par particularly manifested in atheistic, materialistic communism. And so for many evangelicals and fundamentalists, they wanted to wage that battle across the globe. Um, and you can think of not just in uh, what during the Cold War was called the First World, which would basically be Western Europe and North America, um, or the Soviet world, what was called the Second World at that time, but also in the Third World, uh, which would be the rest of the globe. Uh, and many evangelical fundamentalists understood their missions work, uh, understood the expansion of the church into those areas like Africa and South America as part of this spiritual Cold War um, that ultimately would decide sort of the fate of uh, people's souls, not just the fate of the economy or geopolitics or diplomacy. Um, but what was really fundamental here was this spiritual struggle um, between uh, capitalism and the free world and Christianity and the Judeo-Christian uh, civilization and atheistic communism on the other side. So in the chapter, you have something that I really like, and I think that this is one of the major things that you're trying to put across in the book, and that's this notion of categories of how American Christian evangelicals viewed the world. Um, and these three categories are Israel, the nations, and the church. And I want to discuss each one of them. Do you feel it's appropriate to discuss them in any particular order? Yeah, um, I think they would usually in their theology and when they talked, it would probably go church, Israel, nations. Um, and that's sort of a, a vague hierarchy of how important each one is. Um, but yeah, that, that's sort of how they would often do them as church, Israel, nations. So let's go in that order. So can you tell me a little bit about what the category of church meant to American evangelicals in the Cold War? Yeah. So just to give a brief background, this all comes out of a theology called dispensationalism, which uh, became very popular among conservative Protestants in the 19th century. And so almost all the evangelicals in the Cold War um, were operating out of a very general dispensationalist background. Some of them were actually very anti-dispensationalist, but they all sort of used these categories and sort of understood the world through them. And so for the church, uh, this was a particular understanding of the, of the church that was not looking at institutions. And if you, in the volume, a lot of the other traditions like mainline Protestants, they were very focused on institutions and how the church manifested in the world. Uh, for evangelicals, the church was an invisible, spiritual uh, community of true believers. And so uh, this meant that a lot of the institutional churches, and you can think of Protestants always critiquing the Roman Catholics, but even within the Protestant world, the major denominations, these were often considered apostate by evangelicals. And so the true church were um, just people who had a very personal um, relationship with Jesus and who um, really worked toward what they consider to be the goals of Christianity, mostly missions 
and being pietistic, keeping a very particular type of lifestyle. And so these Christians work through organizations and sometimes we're even members of denominations. But you can think of now the manifestation of sort of non-denominational megachurches as one really obvious current example of this idea that you don't have to be a member of like a really historic church to be part of the true uh, invisible church. Oh, that is so interesting. So there's like a modern day connection right there that ties back into this movement. Yes. So really quick, can you give a basic definition of dispensationalism for any listeners who might not know what that means? Yeah, so it's a um, it's a particular way of reading the Bible and then sort of the the theological consequences of that. And and the the term dispensationalism comes from the idea that uh, these people divide up the Bible into dispensations or discrete periods where God is working with humanity in different ways. And so in the Old Testament, that's these different ways that God's relating to the nation of Israel. Um, and in the New Testament and in sort of the future, um, it's how God relates to the church and um, there's particular really popularized uh, understandings of dispensationalism or sort of concepts. The rapture is probably the most obvious one. This idea that suddenly all the true believers will be whisked away to heaven and, you know, their, their clothes will still be laying on the ground and they'll be, uh, if they were driving a car, the car will crash in and cause damage and all that kind of stuff. This is very popular in American pop culture. Um, that's one of the key teachings of dispensationalism. And that gets back to that church, con- that invisible church concept, which is that when the rapture happens, according to dispensationalists, uh, people from all different walks of life who just are true believers uh, will suddenly be whisked away. And people like the Pope, according to most dispensationalists, will still be here on earth to uh, suffer the consequences. Uh, so dispensationalism has sort of an apocalyptic element. Um, if you ever came across the Left Behind novels, those are sort of dispensationalism in a fictional uh, form. Um, and these these evangelicals also believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. So they, they're usually sort of young earth creationists. They're usually very um, concerned about secularism in American uh, society. Um, and they, for a long time, dominated the seminaries that taught most of the pastors that uh, became sort of major evangelical pastors. So dispensationalists have traditionally been very influential at places like Dallas Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, Biola College in or university now in, in L.A. And so they still have a very strong presence in American Christianity. That is so interesting. So let's move on to our next category. So tell me about Israel. Yeah, so this might be the, the sort of easiest for people outside to, to understand what Israel is. And that is, for dispensationalists, it's now the nation of Israel, uh, for the most part. But it's basically the Jewish people. And the understanding here is... Um, God has a special relationship with the church, particularly after Jesus um, was resurrected and became sort of the the head of the church. Um, And Israel has a very long relationship with God through the covenants of the Old Testament and in the dispensationalist understanding in the future, uh, the nation of Israel also plays an important role in the end times. And so for dispensationalists in the Cold War, they're looking at the world through understanding that God is primarily interacting with humans through these two groups, through the nation of Israel, um, and after 1948, that's actually the state of Israel, and through the, the invisible church, which is sort of anchored in America, but has um, members all around the globe. Okay, so what about the nations? So there's this third category, the nations, which is basically like everything, right? Right. Everybody else. Everybody, so, you know, 97 percent of the globe or something. Uh, and the nations are the um, the rest of humanity that has yet to become Christian and become part of the church. 
and isn't Jewish. Um, uh, and in they take these concepts from the Bible. They the dispensationalists sort of develop this theology out of their reading of the Bible. And in the Bible, the nations um, are often mentioned in the Old Testament as basically all the enemies of Israel and all the people who Israel is interacting with in the ancient Near East. And so the Babylonians, the um, the Syrians, all these different different groups. And um, today, dispensationalists see that as everybody, um, everyone from uh, the Soviet Union, for sure, but even including the United States. So the United States itself is not part of the church. It is a nation. And as such, it doesn't have a particular covenantal relationship with God. Um, that's reserved for the church and for Israel. And so for most evangelicals, um, this third category is really how they're understanding sort of the ways of the world. Um, all the diplomacy, all the war, all the politics is part of this nation's category. I understand. So um, one of the things earlier that I, I kind of want to tie back in now that we've gone over all three of those categories is that notion of loyalty. So would any of these American evangelical dispensationalists, would they challenge the notion that they were more loyal to one than the other? Or would they say, yes, we're absolutely more loyal to the church than we are to, say, the United States? Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's always a hard thing for anyone to sort of answer it's so on the broad, spot right? like this. Yeah, um, but but definitely, um, and you you know, th this is a generality, and, and I'm sure there are plenty of exceptions. But for most evangelicals um, during this time, uh, their loyalty, they would claim, would be to the church. That would be sort of their primary identity is grounded in their understanding of themselves as a Christian. You can even see this in World War II. Um, there's a lot of uh, sort of in the major periodicals at the time during World War II, which is sort of the height of, you know, nationalism and fervor fighting the, the evil Nazis. Um, there are there are voices sort of cautioning that, um, you know, putting too much loyalty into the American war cause can detract from what we really should be doing, which is missions and evangelism. And so you even see it at the height of sort of that that nationalist fervor. There are voices saying uh, you know, the United States is, is a force for good in the world, but that is sort of contingent on what the United States stands for, uh, which at the time was freedom and religious freedom and um, sort of, you know, uh, good morals and things like that. But that that was contingent on the United States remaining that way. Uh, so I think, you know, most if you went and polled evangelicals in 1950, they'd all say they're very pro-American and they're very pro-church. Um, but that was because at the time those things lined up. And I think the, the later you go, the more qualifications you get as the United States changes its culture and changes its, um, it, particularly how the Supreme Court is interpreted by evangelicals, that loyalty to um, the U.S. government at least uh, changes. And um, often what will happen is evangelicals start defining America a little differently than other Americans do to sort of retain that that sort of image that they want of what America stands for that's much more consonant with their values as a Christian uh, but that there's some friction there that we see really opening up in the 1970s and 80s I can just picture like a bunch of listeners right now thinking of examples making those connections about how the United States has changed and how the culture has changed since like the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and up to the present day. And they're yeah. probably saying, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's a concept in the chapter that I really want to touch on, and that is the divine economy. What is a basic explanation of the divine economy? 
Yeah. Uh, so this is a term. I mean, I, I made up this term. This is not one that, that oh, nice. dispensationalists would, would make up. Um, but it's the understanding of sort of how I mentioned before in, in dispensationalism, a lot of the way they understand the world is how God interacts with humans um, through these covenants with Israel and the church. And the economy part of that is sort of their attempt to understand how God dispenses blessings and curses throughout the world and sort of how he intervenes in the world. And so the economy is basically uh, trying to understand, um, and not not in a totally mechanistic way, but sort of how God blesses people and how God curses people and sort of how you can get on the right side of that equation of that economy. Uh, and so one of the, the sort of most obvious examples of this is the way evangelicals understand their relationship to Israel and uh, and their reference of a particular verse in Genesis 12, 3, uh, where God is talking to Abraham. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so even dispensationalists in particular read this verse and they say, ah, so this is the sort of way things work. We bless the Jews and then God will bless us. And so you can see there's sort of a... A, a transactional mode here um, that really allow sort of supplies evangelicals part of their politics, sort of how they understand what they should be doing uh, in the world. And so they applied this also to the to the United States during the Cold War, and they understood that if the United States wanted to win the Cold War and receive God's blessings, uh, the United States had to be friendly to the church. They had to empower, the United States had to empower the church to fulfill its mission in the world, which is to uh, uh, spread the gospel um, and to uphold uh, the right world. And so they were understanding sort of, as they were interpreting the fate of the U.S. during the Cold War, they were really thinking about it in terms of these blessings and curses and what I'm calling the divine economy. That's really interesting. Okay, so in the future, whenever people write about this, they'll attribute that term back to Dan Hummel. I love it. So, yes. so how much of a threat did American Christian nationalists truly believe in the evils of like atheistic communism? Because like one of the examples I was thinking of when I was reading this is there's a scene in the Americans when um, the father is really getting on his daughter's case for finding uh, Jesus and for going to a really um, intense church and being very devoted and he makes a lot of comments of like, um, is this is this what you wanted? Is this for um, Jesus and everything? And he's screaming at her in the house. And so we know the plot of that story is that they they're undercover for the communist Soviet Union, and their children are growing up in the American West, and so. What is this dynamic here? Like, how did American Christians truly think about the evils of atheistic communism? Like, do we sensationalize this um, at all today? Or is this something that was, like, really fervently held in the 1980s? Yeah. Um, so I think it all it depends sort of on which part of the evangelical world you're talking about. I mean, I think the average American uh, evangelical who had a day job that wasn't related to their church and uh, had a family and everything. I mean, I don't think they're coming home every night and freaking out about the Soviet Union. I think it's something that would come through the news. Um, one way that it came through to a lot of people was through missionaries who were in countries that uh, were under sort of um, 
conflict and struggle during the Cold War, and they'd hear stories about you know horrible atrocities committed by communists or whatever uh, through those um, through those avenues. And so I think for those for for like the mass majority of of evangelicals. Um, you know, atheistic communism is sort of a looming threat, much like terrorism worked uh, after 9-11 for many Americans, but it's not something they were interacting with on a daily basis. I think for evangelical leaders, uh, particularly leaders who were leading missions or international organizations or had connections to um, Europe, uh, the, the Cold War and atheistic communism were much more prevalent. And they were seen as um, not only sort of a geopolitical threat, but a, uh, a sort of alternate spiritual worldview. And a lot of them described communism as actually like a religion, um, something where there were a lot of fervent believers who had a particular teaching that they were trying to spread across the globe. They saw a lot of themselves in communism. And for that reason, uh, really wanted to vigilantly fight uh, communism wherever it came up. And that that led to often misreading uh, critiques of capitalism as part of communism, like any it's sort of anything uh, that critiqued uh, the the sort of status quo in the West was um, looked at suspiciously. Uh, but that was sort of indicative of how vigilant some of these sort of intellectuals and pastors and organizational leaders uh, feared uh, atheistic communism. Does have you found anything about how Vietnam changed the views of American Christians during this time period? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, research done on sort of the role of Vietnam in the Cold War, and then uh, a smaller body of research, but still very interesting on on how Christians in particular reacted. Uh, for the most part, evangelicals, um, and again, I'm talking sort of generally as a group, were very supportive of the Vietnam War even into the early 70s. And part of this was because there were missionaries in South Vietnam that would have been uh, either you know. Um, kicked out or actually uh, uh, under threat had, if North Vietnam uh, were to win the Vietnam War. Um, and there was also an understanding that this was, uh, there was sort of a, a large belief in the, in the domino theory uh, among evangelicals that if one uh, nation fell to communism, it would just be the start of a domino set of nations falling to communism. Uh, so for many evangelicals, they supported the Vietnam War all the way through um, until uh, 1973 and the and sort of the peace process uh, uh, was concluded there um, and that did not really unlike other parts of American society that really understood the Vietnam War as a moral failing by the US government by US society uh, evangelicals largely supported uh, the government uh, in those efforts in large part because of the way the government talked about the war as uh, fighting atheistic communism and understanding the government's argument was always that there were these strong connections between North Vietnam and the Soviet Union and communist China, and that these were all essentially part of a monolithic communist threat. Uh, and evangelicals really understood uh, the spiritual dimensions of the, bat of, of the war in those same terms, and so sort of saw eye to eye with the government on the war. So knowing all of this, how important is the Cold War in giving us what we think of as modern American evangelical Christianity today? I think those categories that I've been talking about, which were existed before the Cold War, but certainly became animated during the Cold War, I think those still um, work for a lot of evangelicals. They're still thinking in those terms. 
And because those categories aren't tied specifically to the Cold War, um, they were they shape sort of how evangelicals understood the post-Cold War period as well. And so Israel is obviously still a very important topic for evangelicals. Christian Zionism is growing um, and is sort of more popular now than it's um, and, and it's spreading as well. More, more popular now than it's been um, probably uh, ever. Really? How and, so? Uh, not in part because uh, Christian Zionists um, with the Trump administration have sort of enjoyed uh, the, the best access they've ever had to the president. Um, the move of the embassy to Jerusalem uh, by the U.S. government was sort of a huge win for them. And also um, Christian Zionism is spreading around the globe uh, to other Christian communities. Um, and you're seeing millions and millions of Christians sort of um, verbally supporting Israel, at least, um, if not actually politically supporting them. And so this is a re- remaining issue. And it's one that sort of came out of the period of the Cold War and um, remains with us. And I think the other big way we can see um, this worldview shaped by the Cold War coming into the post-Cold War period is this um, what I called in my chapter, and I'm borrowing this from another contributor to the book, Axel Schaefer, um, this uh, anti-statist statism, which is the idea that uh, evangelicals are very much against big government, they say, um, and very much for you know a free market in, in economics and sort of religious freedom and all these concepts. But at, at points where they see the government being able to help the church, uh, they're actually for big government. And so some ways we see this are um, evangelicals are very um, pro the U.S. enforcing religious freedom abroad. They want the U.S. to intervene into other countries to basically maintain religious freedom as they understand it so that they can uh, have missionaries in those places. You see this on the domestic side with evangelicals being very pro-life with the abortion issue. And uh, that's essentially asking the government to intervene in a a particular area because they see the stakes as so high uh, that you can't just sort of have a libertarian view of these issues. And so part of this is trying to make sense of that, what a lot of us from the uh, who aren't part of the dispensationalist world, see as a peculiar, um, it's sometimes hypocritical or inconsistent understanding of the role of the government in society. Um, one of my sort of points is to say, well, if you get inside their world and if you get inside the concepts that they're using, there is actually a consistency there. That doesn't mean you have to agree with it or uh, you know, even, even sort of um, let them have their say. You can still argue against it. But there is a consistency there if you understand the categories um, that they're using. Near the end of the piece, you talk about how the Cold War between communism and capitalism may have come to an end, but the spiritual war between church and nations was just heating up. What do you see as being some defining moments of that uh, that have played out in the years since, or how do you see that developing into the future? Yeah, so I, I thought of, when I wrote that, I thought of a, a couple ways um, I was applying that. One is is understanding the, the sort of culture wars that we have in America as part of this church-nations confrontation. So um, I think if, if you think about the various Supreme Court cases um, in the last, uh, you know, 40 years, but even after the Cold War, um, we've had major decisions about... Um, sort of public displays of religiosity about gay marriage. Uh, These things are understood within uh, the dispensationalist world and and the broader evangelical world as sort of church values versus national secular values uh, battles. 
Uh, and these have sort of intensified. They were very intense in the 80s, but they've also intensified since the end of the Cold War as the stakes of these sort of domestic uh, issues have have sort of risen um, as American society has continued to change, continued to secularize uh, and liberalize on a lot of these issues. I also was thinking of the church versus the nation's sort of confrontation um, heating up, thinking about the global uh, global Christianity and how in countries like China, uh, there is a massive growth in the, the number of, of Christians uh, in those countries, largely due to missions, but also due to indigenous uh, growth. And that this will be one of the major battle lines of the 21st century is understanding how countries that see Christianity as a threat to governments who see Christianity as a threat to their uh, way of life, to their governance, uh, deal with these, um, these Christians. Do they accept them? Do they try to suppress them? And as American evangelicals look across the globe, uh, in the 21st century, they're thinking about those issues as well, sometimes more so than particular issues that the U.S. government finds important. And evangelicals are often lobbying the U.S. government to care about religious rights in a, in Asia, in Africa, in a way that if the government, uh, if the U.S. government was just sort of operating without the, those pressures, they probably wouldn't find those issues uh, as important. So I'm just trying to highlight those issues that evangelicals in particular find very important uh, in the present. Dr. Dan Hummel, thank you so much for this really fascinating conversation. Um, I've learned so many new things just in the last half hour. So the book is North American Churches and the Cold War. Is it out now? It is out now. Okay, so check out the book. You are one of 34 contributors, so that is sure to be a fantastic collection. Um, thank you so much, sir, for your time. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.